when we were working earlier today, clearing tea tree, <coughs> I was reminded of Lumpur Chao's observation that Dukkha is similar to a thorn or something prickly that you get in your foot. Like those uh, small, tiny, sharp leaves from the tea tree, when they loosen, they often they fall into your boot or attach to your socks. And every time you put your foot down, you feel short, sharp pinprick. But because you're working, you often ignore it or let it go and just keep walking even though it's hurting. Lumpocha pointed out how dukkha is like that. <clears throat> you have a vague idea there's some thorn in your foot it keeps bringing pain. But often we let it ride, let it go for, for a while as long as we can tolerate it. But we know there's something there until eventually we get so fed up that we sit down and really find the source of the problem and pull it out. Practicing the Dhamma can be like this in many ways, in many respects we have <coughs> smaller or greater kinds of dukkha affecting us. But quite often we are only half aware of it and, and not really looking for the source of the problem very hard. And as long as conditions are conducive enough, we'll, we'll keep on practicing even though our craving, our attachment is causing us dukkha. We can cope with the dukkha so we don't really look to find out what the true cause of it is. Sometimes we uh, achieve a certain level of um, comfort in our monastic life, both physical and mental well-being, and that's not even necessarily wrong. So as we learn, practice the Vinaya, learn to meditate, improve our level of mindfulness, then we do achieve a certain peace and happiness. But then, like the little tea tree leaves, you get these little prickles of dukkha every so often that remind you that you haven't completed the task for which you set out for when you ordain for complete liberation from suffering, from dukkha. Which is what, why we have to practice with heedfulness, carefulness, because it's always around the next corner. And we can't be complacent in our practice. And developing the 
qualities of the Eightfold Path and all the spiritual qualities that are supportive in our practice for liberation. It's important to keep putting effort into refining uh, these qualities, bringing them up, improving them all the time. And if you, uh, when you read the suttas or remember, recollect the life of the Buddha, there were people who, he said, are not ready to see the Dhamma or even begin practicing the Dhamma really because they're too attached to their comfort. <coughs> Maybe they're wealthy, powerful, a prince or a merchant. So much comfort that the, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths doesn't really make much of an impact on them when they hear them. And they're just not ready to, to look more closely at Dukkha. We also pointed out Brahmas, people who have developed jhana, let's say outside of the Buddhist dispensation, have not yet been established in right view. They may attain deep states of samadhi, but when they come out of those states, or if they've been reborn as a Brahma, when they are reborn out of the Brahma realms, still possible for them to make what you might think as very elementary mistakes and break precepts and do quite unwholesome things because they become so used to the bliss and the peace of the states of samadhi they can attain they forget right view samadhi so they haven't trained much in contemplation. So they come out of their blissful state or their blissful realm of being and can straight away fail to recognize an unwholesome course of action and they go and make some bad karma for themselves. So the role of right view and listening to the Dhamma studying the Dhamma Vinaya is vital to keep refreshing uh, the inputs for developing right view. However comfortable whatever level of happiness we've already achieved in our practice, in our lives, until we're liberated it's never enough we, and we have to keep returning to investigating the truth, looking for the root cause of suffering, looking to where craving arises, looking to its effect on the mind, looking to attachment to see how, how attachment, what it is, how it affects us. Sometimes the Buddha would begin an explanation of right view, just saying it's the recognition of the debt we have to parents. We have a mother who gave birth to us, a father. They both bring us up. And the awareness of that, it's a sign of wisdom, the awakened mind. You're not ignoring that truth or suppressing it. You also 
pointed out the recognition of the value of dana, generosity, as something worthwhile, as bearing fruit. So the beginning of samadhi is something very a simple reflection, but a recurring reflection through your life. Grounds us in you know, the reality of our existence as human beings. Somebody brings us up, gives birth to us, brings us up. And we live in the world and there's a value to helping others, supporting others. So even though seclusion, even isolation sometimes is a big part of our life. It's not running away from the world or turning our back on the world. We still ground ourselves in right view. And we also go on to reflect on karma. What is good karma? What is bad karma? What are the roots of good karma? What are the roots of bad karma? Karma is something that affects us. It's true. It happens. Rooted on our, based on our intentions. Greed, anger, delusion, unwholesome intentions lead to an increase in the making of unwholesome karma, an increase in unwholesome states of mind and unpleasant experiences are the result. Actions rooted in non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion increase the goodness, the purity of our mind, increase our happiness and benefit for ourselves and others. Just this simple reflection is something that we develop daily. Whatever our skills in meditation, entering states of samadhi, developing insight through vipassana meditation. This simple basic reflection has to always be there, the recognition of what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, and then acting appropriately. Unwholesome mental states are to be abandoned. They're to be restrained when they arise, they're to be abandoned as quickly as possible. Unwholesome courses of action, speech or action, are to be refrained from. Wholesome courses of action are to be developed, brought up, brought into existence and then developed. This is something we're just training in all the time. It's, uh, you might say, the nuts and bolts of our practice in the monastery, becoming more and more used to cultivating wholesome mental states and abandoning unwholesome mental states. There's always room for more practice in this direction because we are still caught up in suffering and we're still creating the causes for suffering. There's always more refined mindfulness, awareness, more determined effort that we can bring up. And one of the ways the practice develops is when we understand the supportive 
nature of the different qualities, different parts of the practice, how so dana and sila also support bhavana, how calm, developing bhavana, calm through bhavana develops insight and wisdom, how we rely on you know, faith, effort, mindfulness, samadhi and wisdom. Developing all these qualities together, they have a supportive, nourishing effect on the mind. Or when we're considering you know, the development of wholesome dhammas, the wholesome path, we might consider the enlightenment of factors, how they also supporting each other, developing mindfulness, sati, uh, investigation of the dhamma, dhamma which are persistent effort, wiriya, Pasadi, tranquility, samadhi, um, concentration, upeka, equanimity. Piti, rapture. You might say these are all present in the, the mind that is progressing towards Magapala, Nibbana. But also we can learn from them, just investigating them as different qualities, whether they're present or not, a different role, supportive role in training the mind. Particularly piti, pasati, samati. These are qualities of calm that come through meditation. Sati, Tamawichya Wiriya, the more you know the effort side of things, putting effort in and developing wisdom understanding of the practice. But both are like you know, legs of a person, you need the two legs to stand up straight. We need the different aspects of the practice to be developed, developed well, balanced. Even equanimity yes. it's a quality that balances the mind, but it's practiced in conjunction with others. See, the other Brahma Viharas practiced, supported by mindfulness, wisdom, and so on. So, learning the interrelationship, the different supporting roles that these qualities have can help give you an understanding of what you are developing in your practice. Understanding, looking at how your mind is from day to day. You see, sometimes we need to develop more stillness because we have been Thinking a lot about the Dhamma, putting forth effort can be very tiring for the mind. So then the mind needs to be refreshed, energized by more samatha training, more development of calm. So we put more effort into that. And when the mind becomes more calm, more stable, balanced, then that's a foundation for contemplation, developing insight again. 
you're going back and forth like this, but always you're referring back to the experience of our mind through our day, through our practice, and getting familiar with reviewing it, reviewing what's going on, being aware of how peaceful we are at any one time. If we're not particularly calm or peaceful, learning what's, where am I going wrong, what's happening. This is like sorting out these little needle leaves or thorns that may get into your foot. Sometimes they get stuck in your sock, you have to go through your sock, pulling them out one by one, it takes time. We have to take that time because these are the skills we're learning as monastics, as meditators. Because they're on the inside, they're internal skills. Other people might not recognize what we're doing. So they often have their very simplistic view that we're you know, just sitting in the forest doing nothing or some, something like that. But they're very clear qualities, wholesome qualities that we're developing. They both counter the unwholesome qualities that maybe we're more used to, but they're also bringing the mind to the point where insight arises and we have a clear seeing of what the causes of suffering are and then uprooting them from the mind, not just suppressing them, but actually pulling them out, abandoning them. So all through our practice we keep returning to the foundation of say samaditi, becoming skilled at recognizing unwholesome dhammas so that we can abandon them or counter them with other more wholesome, skillful qualities. And then how to bring up the skillful qualities, developing that skill. And sometimes it's just you're remembering things, remembering the right way to think the right way to act. Just pausing, learning to pause, establish sati and then remember what the right thing to do is in a certain situation. <clears throat> the monastic training supports this, you know, it supports the arising of sati. By living with other people who practice sati, who are training, living in a peaceful, quiet place, in the various routines and rituals we do. Of course, there can be a cause for just kind of blind attachment or just sleepwalking through our practice. But when used skillfully as tools, then they're all helping us to bring out more mindfulness, more sati. Because we really need to train this mind, tame it even. Many times the Buddha compared it to a wild animal. You have to tame this mind, and you have to use tools and techniques to do that. A lot of the technique is about returning to mindfulness, sati, the present moment, using your meditation object, returning to that, bringing up sati with the vinaya, sati vinaya, awareness of the vinaya rules, the training rules, because they're only there to help remove unwholesome behavior body, speech and mind. I got a letter from a friend of mine today, who, a school friend who was also interested in meditation, became a Zen monk. I remember visiting him a few years ago and 
in the main meditation hall where he lives, there's the statue of the Arahant standing on the back of the tiger. Just to remind everyone that you know, the mind is like the wild tiger that needs to be tamed, but the Arahant has tamed it. My friend said he just received his um, full Dharma transition, transmission, sort of similar to having become a Majjhima monk, you might say, so after six or seven years of training as a postulant and then as a novice, you get to receive a Dhamma transmission and you can take on more teaching roles and more roles of responsibility in your monastic life. And with that he received um, a robe, he says, very similar to the colour we wear, the ochre robe, the brown robe colour. Previously his robes were almost black. He said the robe actually has a name. It's called the the robe of the colour of silence. So he says it's a reminder every day you put your robe on. It's, the, it's as if you're entering silence, reminding yourself of silence. It's a very skillful reflection. You know, if every time you put your robe on, it's like you're establishing sati, quietening the mind down from its mental proliferation. So you can actually see what's going on, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful. I mean, we have similar themes. All the reflections we do are for this point. You put your robe on, wisely reflecting what the purpose of this robe is, to bring up sati and wisdom. Why do we wear a robe? To protect us from the elements, from modesty. Why do we eat our alms food? Just to keep the body healthy, to practice for another day and a night. And we have these reflections to bring up mindfulness at every point of the day, in every activity. It doesn't matter what the posture is, what the activity is, there's always something to reflect on. And this is our training. We're cutting through our old habits of just always seeking distraction or escape through fantasy <clears throat> or uh, sleep or getting caught into more unwholesome states of mind, you know, the worries, the desires to get things and so on. These are the practices we have to employ. We have to employ our meditation object over and over again. Wisely reflect on the use of the requisites and contemplate you know, what's going on in our mind. Contemplate these different thoughts and moods that arise and pass away all the time. Have you ever actually tried to count how many thoughts have gone through your mind just in a short period of time? Distinct concepts, ideas, reactions to things. Very quickly it's impossible to count. The scientists try to measure it and they say it's thousands every day, every hour. As we train in wholesome dhammas, you know, there's a certain continuity that arises. One wholesome dhamma supports the arising of another wholesome dhamma. So they call the state of samadhi is the continuous presence of wholesome dhammas. 
perhaps the most efficient, most effective way to do that is develop a meditation object like the breath. We keep returning to one point the mind, pay attention to the breath. Let go of the distractions. As long as we keep putting effort into that, then little by little then the mind becomes more steady and stable because that's what wholesome dhammas do to a human mind. They stabilize it. They bring a sense of well-being. And the mind can function well. So we can also contemplate, look back at our own experience and understand it better. All these moments of mindfulness, sati, that we keep bringing up, you gradually it pays off. You become more calm, more aware, and we know ourselves better. So you obviously know the dangers of the untamed mind, the wild mind, and you can be more on guard against it. And you know the value of the well-trained mind when it is more calm, the mindfulness is more steady we can understand things better and that brings its own peace it's the peace of sati and samadhi and it's the peace of panya inside in the end we have to learn from our experience we can't just shut ourselves away from the world you might do that temporarily for periods it can be useful but in the end it's not not how we have have to practice we have to learn how to contemplate the world with sati, with wisdom, to see the <clears throat> three characteristics you see in each dukkha anatta in the world, the world of our senses, the world of this body, this mind. And if we establish right view over and over again, and then put effort into bringing up these wholesome dhammas. Well, that's where we can really find something that's reliable in our minds, whatever the external conditions, the changing nature of the world around us, our own age, health, the weather, people come and go and so on. You really start to take a refuge in the path of practice as your real source of peace, happiness and, and, and clarity. The more you understand this, the more you value say, the establishing of right view, samadhiti, then gives you a certain confidence that whatever happens in your life, however extreme, happiness or sad, good or bad, you have a foundation from which you can contemplate it and not create more suffering out of it. And you have some technique, some method to remove the causes of the suffering. You know what to do, even if it's a challenge, it's hard. But you know what you have to do. It gives one a great confidence in the practice. If we don't put effort into developing right view, then there's always this this danger of becoming complacent or even if we achieve some happiness then when conditions change then you you get lost again in the suffering and your desires, attachments and they can be overwhelming like the story about the tiger and the elephant 
the elephant in the forest enjoying a, a bath in the pond on a hot summer's day and the tiger coming through the forest looks and with jealousy and says, oh, I'd like some of that. I'd like to have a nice cool bath and enjoy myself like that, like the elephant. So he hides until the elephant's gone. Then the tiger sneaks into the pond thinking he'll have fun and enjoy himself, but because he can't swim and he has a natural phobia of water, immediately panics. There's just legs and head and tail struggling in all directions and he just calls out, wow, because he's so afraid. And he scrambles to the side and runs away in fear. It's like the practitioner who hasn't established right view and they go off into the forest or on retreat and they panic and they're miserable. And they can't find happiness even in a, a nice, secluded, peaceful environment because they haven't established the right view to reflect on their experience properly. That every mind state is a problem. Even the good ones can be a problem when you don't have right view because you attach to them, you crave them, you want more of them, you want to hold on to them. The unpleasant mind states just feed more more suffering and we're going to get bogged down, struggle with the suffering. When right view is there, it's easier to contemplate and with some patience and effort then we can take everything as part of the practice. We don't have to fear it or panic, we just patiently work through it, work through our karma, abandoning the unwholesome, cultivating the wholesome. So tonight is uh, observance night. We can dedicate our practice to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, to our teachers, and uh, carry on meditating for a while.